Welcome, everybody. I am Zach Miller, today's host. I'm the editor at Tearsheet. Joining me is Steph Chu from Portage. Um, let's talk a little bit about your background. But before we do, um, this is a LinkedIn Live. We're experimenting here. Uh, our podcasts for the past 10 years have been recorded. Um, doing this live is, is a new muscle for us to exercise, but also one I think that takes our recordings and, and, and the great people that, that populate our, our podcasts and, and, and turn them inside out and enable you guys to hear it live, ask questions if you want. Um, anyway, it will also be published as a podcast as well. So thanks for joining us today. We're going to be talking about fintech investing. Steph, would you like to introduce yourself? Who are you and what do you do? Hi, Zach. Thanks for having me on the live podcast. I'm Steph Chu. I'm a partner at Portage. We are a fintech-focused venture fund that invests globally. I'm actually doing this podcast from Rio right now as a, as a testament to that. We do, we've got really two different strategies. Our first strategy is where I spend the majority of my time, which is early stage investing, seed to B. We write five to $30 million lead checks primarily. And we've got a second strategy, which we launched last year, which is a growth-oriented strategy. So we write 50 to $100 million checks into the late stage. So I can certainly comment on both sides of the spectrum because there's been some pretty big changes in the fintech arena. Um, and what I will say is about my personal background, I, I really helped found Portage in 2016, have been around since the launch of Fund One, and have been building our platform here ever since. Before that, I helped build and launch a uh, basically retail advice platform that now belongs and powers a lot of what a, a top five Canadian bank does in that uh, on that side of the retail investment um, portfolio. Before that, I was mainly working for large financial services companies at BCG. And before that, I was at a B2B payments company. So I've been in and around fintech financial services for the past 15 years or so. Well, you've really seen like sort of the entire gamut of, of what it takes of the industry, actually, like from investing, entrepreneurship, um, consulting. Um, you really seen it all. So I, as, as we get into the portfolio, I'm curious, was the launch of that second fund was that in the works before some of the changes in the market? Um, was that fortuitous or was that in response to some of the changes in the market? We had it in the works. We knew we wanted to do something. So the second strategy, I should say, because we're investing out of our third fund on the early side and our first fund on the mm. new strategy, it was, I would say, we knew we wanted to do something in, in late stage investing. Our goal at Portage is really to be the best and the, well, the best, but let's say one of the best fintech investors for any stage. And so we knew we wanted a vehicle that could invest later than our early stage funds. And so it was already in the works, but I would say what we, once we saw what the market was doing, we tweaked it a little bit because we figured there would be really substantial opportunities to invest, especially at the late stage, given given what's going on. And so I would say it was already in the works, in the pipeline. However, it was definitely opportunistic. And the timing of launching it, we we moved it up versus what we would have we might have done to try to catch the market timing. That makes sense. So so would it make sense to start with that newer strategy and then work our way back to the first strategy, the original strategy? Um, so so have you have you deployed capital out of out of that strategy already? In that strategy We've got, I should say, we've got two other partners that lead it. I spend most mm -hmm. of my time on the early stage, but we've okay. we've written one check so far into a company called P97, which is a fuel 
a fuel payments company. Interesting. Okay, so so let's switch to the to the original strategy. Um, let's talk about that. Maybe uh, talk about some of the companies that are there themes that are, that um, sort of manifest their way in the strategy. So we do, and so uh, we we were actually super thematically driven. So mm-hmm. every year our theses change depending on what's going on in the market. I would say we've got two or three at any given time all of us are working on two or three different theses. I would say things that are interesting to us right now are um, one, I think the intersection between FinTech and climate, climate being one of the the areas that has not seen a downturn and has kind of been counter-cyclical in this latest recessionary environment. Um, obviously, a, a lot of mission-driven founders, and I actually think there are a lot of financial solutions that could actually make sense here from things like tax credits to other things like ESG frameworks for investing. We invested in a company called Novisto recently, which actually does, it's an ERP basically for ESG reporting, super relevant in in heavy regulated environments like Europe, if you're a public company, you need to be thinking about ESG reporting. I think we even feel it ourselves from an L, our, our own LPs are demanding a different level of granularity on reporting of our portfolio. And I think that's certainly going to get more and more prevalent o- around the world. Even the SEC has now been pretty concerned about greenwashing. And so I I do think that's one trend that we're spending a lot of time on, all the offshoots of potential climate risk around insurance, um, around weather-related changes in in fire and flood. There's whole new models, whole new weather models that are going to need to be implemented. And so I do think we, we're spending time in that area. Um, the area that everybody's talking about, I'm a little more skeptical on, but we are spending time in obviously AGI. How will this new set of AI tech, generative AI impact financial services going forward? I think there's no doubt that it's going to change a lot. Of so what's how- the skepticism? It, I think I think my I think it's a healthy skepticism from having lived through two other AI bubbles. Um, before, and I think the question is: Are you referring from, to like the chatbot bubble? I mean, yes, there was the chatbot bubble yeah. five years ago. Let's say Definitely. I remember that very well. Um, but look, it's going to change the world. It's going to change the way that we work. It's going to change financial services. There's no doubt. I think the question for me is who accrues the value, and mm. value today I think is skewed towards the incumbent because they have data. I think there is, there are lots of new companies that are going to benefit from having much more, they're going to be much lower cost because now there's just a very different way to build a company and not every large incumbent is obviously going to be able to make the transition to using the, like to using all of this new tech to really scale I think that's the massive advantage here is that a startup internal use of it is that's really the biggest advantage right mm-hmm. now that I would say a startup 
should be able to use is the fact that they can have many fewer engineers to build the exact same thing because of the productivity gains. However, I, like throughout history, productivity has always been a very difficult thing to actually measure. And the I was reading like there's a great article with with the few studies that actually shows as technology increases, you actually don't see full product on things like the tablet or the mobile phone because you have a whole new set of distractions that end up coming with it. And so I I do believe like speed to market, being able to build more with less is an advantage that a startup would have. But otherwise, a lot of incumbents and a lot of startups that already exist, they're not even startups anymore, large tech companies that already exist have huge head starts, distribution advantage, data advantage. And that ultimately is, is if they can figure out how to use these models, which by the way, are mainly going to be open sourced and available or, and or available to the highest bidder. Um, given what you said, Steph, I'm, I'm curious. Um, yeah. So, so using it as building blocks for some of the top technology companies, that makes sense. Generative AI. Um, we had, we, we spoke to some, um, some data scientists recently. Uh, we did a session around that and um, one even had a company that sells into financial services. And he, he said like, AI is just not ready for prime time. Like on, on the consumer facing side, because it's, it just does stuff that nobody understands. Um, do you see it this, similarly? Yeah, I think explainability is going to be a huge issue in financial services applications for sure. And regulators, and we've seen how regulators, what, and different regulators have different policies on this for sure. Um, but I think transparency and explainability have been core building blocks for most regulators in the world. So if you deny somebody for a loan or you deny somebody on the grounds of, of, of a specific attribute for insurance, that's a pretty serious thing. Sure. You need to be able to explain to regulators why you aren't discriminating against. Yeah. Like what if AI fell in love with one of the customers, you know, like that's a big problem. <laughs> yes, that could also be a big problem from a customer service perspective. And I do think like, I'm thinking about all the, and it, if you guys have run, and I'm sure many people in the audience have, if you've run auto GPT or any of the, like GPT four is amazing. There's definitely still, there's definitely still some consumer facing things that you would need to wrap in order to make it usable for for anybody. Similarly, AutoGPT, which actually does where I think the world is headed, which is even more interesting is the actual automation of tasks. Mm. It's pretty rough right now. And so, and fairly buggy. And over time, it's going to improve. You can see how quickly the technology is moving. But I definitely think, I still believe for financial services, you're going to need very specific vertical applications that wrap around the core AI just because of either a regulatory mandate and or to really make the user experience excellent, to connect into all of your financial accounts, to do the things that you need to do. I think the AI is not quite good enough to be horizontal and, and good at all applications yet. Yeah, we, we had a recent podcast with uh, one of the first firms we've spoken to that was um, using AI as sort of the ChatGPT AI specifically as a core to their new products. And they spent so much time and energy writing the prompts to it and then taking the answers coming out to be able to, to make sense of it and to control it. Um, we did get a question, Steph, from, from, the, from the audience, if you don't mind us shifting yeah. gears a little bit. 
Um, let's see, we bring this on screen. Scott Mills asks, any advice to universities that are seeking to create our fintech workforces? Is this something you feel you can address? I don't know if I have really good advice here on this. I think. Well, I think, maybe we can broaden it into, into uh, yeah, just, just skill sets within fintech, you know? Yeah, I think fintech is really interesting because it is a combination of, it is, I think, first and foremost, tech. So all of the same skill sets that you would need to run a great tech company, I think, apply in the fintech space. I think the things that make fintech a little bit different are the time horizon in which you operate needs to be a little bit longer because the regular, like to stand up a company in fintech in a regulated environment, either in banking, sometimes in lending, in insurance, even in payments, things just take longer Yes, because the infrastructure is usually quite antiquated. Quite frankly, payment rails in most places are, with the exception of some like picks, I would say in Brazil and is, is right, one great yeah. example of where yeah. of, of, of a, and open banking, let's say in the UK is another example of where there is some government mandate to modernize payment systems. And, and there are a few other countries in the world like Australia that have, that have made inroads in this direction as well. I would say the, but like being heavily regulated just requires have more funding up front to actually build. But I would say the skill sets themselves, the one thing that is different is obviously an, an understanding of the specific esoteric financial markets, which actually work quite differently in terms of how the balance sheet flows, how the income statement flows. The, the specifics of financial services are pretty different, even across financial services. And so having a few subject matter experts in whatever vertical you're trying to build in to handle the financial side is also important. But I would say the majority of, for the most part, the skill set of building of in fintech is pretty similar to the skill set of building in tech, but the, the environment is slightly different. You need a longer runway, there's higher setup costs. And I think you probably want a few people who understand the semantics of the niche of financial services that you're, you're entering. Great. Appreciate that, Steph. Um, let's shift gears and, and talk a little bit about what's happening out there. Sort of, you know, First Republic just, you know, taking in receivership, gets sold to JP Morgan, SVB. We've got high interest rates. We've got a pullback on funding for fintechs. Like, what, what, how, how do you see it sitting in your seat, um, managing this portfolio and managing, you know, future returns? Yeah. I mean, I think everybody's seen the numbers year over year in, in, Q4 and in Q1 fundraising was down around 70%. I would say like deal volume is down 30-40% as well like along that same time horizon year over year even between 2022 and 2023 which is a pretty big jump we're kind of back to where we were in 2018-2019. Right. Multiples are also down so if you look at the public markets they actually follow the, well, the private markets follow the public markets. We went from 2020, 2021 multiples of 10 to 20 times forward revenues. Now we're at one to six times forward revenues, depending on what vertical you look at within financial mm. services. And so I would say fintech has actually been hit disproportionately hard. There will 
a pendulum swing in 2020 and 2021 fintech was probably the most the the some of the highest valued companies out there were in fintech and one in every five venture dollars was going into fintech and we've seen a really dramatic pullback in the public markets but also in the private markets where deal volumes decline in valuations at the late stage they've come down by at series b 50 percent at series c and d up to 70 and 80 percent down so i think what we're seeing is a, a real pullback in the adventure environment on the public market side um a real a, a real compression of multiples uh and and that has impacted deals getting done because I think it's very hard now, even as a VC to figure out how to price deals because last rounds were marked where they were marked in 2020 and 2021 companies have not yet needed to come to market because they raised large rounds at that time at the highs and closing the gap between what, what, what is a quote unquote fair price these days when multiples have collapsed 80, 70, 80, 90% is a really hard thing to understand in the public markets and therefore in the private markets are probably somewhere in between what they were last time and that number. It's a big spread. And so I think we're seeing a bit of a, we're still, even in 2023, still seeing a little bit of a stalemate in in terms of new funding rounds. However, I do think, and, and the environment has just gotten even, the macro environment I think has gotten has created some opportunities, honestly. I actually think consumer okay. balance sheets are not consumer balance sheets are actually stronger than you might than I might have thought they would be in this level. We haven't really seen there's been clearly a tech recession, but we haven't really seen the general recession yet. I think we've seen a few, a few companies outside of tech start to let start to start to announce layoffs. And and so I think we're starting to see that, but it's been more delayed. That I would have I would have thought. And and so therefore I do think there are there's and and obviously nobody would have predicted the the fall of both SVB and First Republic, which I think is creating actually pretty massive inflows and opportunities for fintechs that can fill the gap because there's gonna be there are gonna be very few institutions that are gonna lend to startups going forward or fewer institutions, although there are, there are a lot of incumbents trying to fill this gap as well. But I think we've just lost two big pillars of the startup environment, which most of like a number of different portfolio companies of mine banked with SVB and with FRB respectively. There's now new opportunities to fill that gap in the SMB banking and the startup banking space. In the venture debt space, there's a huge hole. There's also a huge hole lending to founders who mainly to date have had have had really weird balance sheets where a lot of their capital is actually tied up in in very valuable eventually illiquid stock and so i think having it's i think it's going to be tough for the next few years and certainly banking is going to become more expensive if you're starting a company however it's clear also that there are a new set of opportunities in the fintech space that are going to be opened by by what's happening in the macro. Agreed, totally. Um, there are two questions I want to ask you before we get to the half hour and we finish, but um, I want to go back to the portfolio, the current portfolio, and 
hear some more about some of the highlights within the portfolio? I know that's hard for investors to pick one over another, but curious, maybe it doesn't have to be a hierarchy, just things that illustrate sort of some of the theses that you've mentioned earlier, Steph, um, and sort of, you know, descriptive of, of the portfolio and your activity. Yeah, great. So why don't I mention a few that kind of hot, or I'll highlight a few. These are not necessarily, it's like choosing your favorite child is what exactly. everybody says. So love you these all are not equally representative yeah. of, of the, these are representative highlights in, in the portfolio. So maybe I'll start with fund three. I've spent a lot of my, t- my personal time in payments. We invested in a company called Tally, which is a modern payment processor starting in credit where I think, like, I think there's actually a thesis you could argue that you could rebuild the same companies again and again, especially in evergreen theses like the payment space where no one is no one is necessarily incented to innovate and there are huge incumbents. And the new incumbents become kind of like the old incumbents pretty quickly. Every 10 years, you have a new crop of payment processing companies. Um and so Tally is actually starting in the cre- the revolving credit space where there really are just the the current competitors are kind of like I2C and Galileo, which could which are techno- which have technology stacks which are twenty plus years old. So the ability to actually build a bo- like a modern new stack, I, like I think this is pretty representative of something that we 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 liked because it's a it's a fundamental piece of infrastructure starting with the hook that hasn't necessarily been developed, but that can also serve and we can add value by hopefully introducing other companies in our portfolio that also have, that also want to launch products in the credit space. And I like that component of how we invest is pretty important. We always ask if we can help. And I think it also lends to good product validation that we're able to have if we can introduce two of our portfolio companies and have them vet a founder or have them vet a product for us. That's instant or very quick validation that we can get from a customer lens. So that's that's definitely one company that we're excited about started by a founder who is, a, is super deep in the payment space. Sunil's been at various different fintechs in payments and in lending, which I think gives him a... Um, Another thing that we look for, which is an unfair advantage in building in building the company. And then so seed stage company, then I'll talk about like kind of the exact opposite on the opposite side of the spectrum. We made a we've made a number of consumer fintech investments. It's actually the other area that I spend a lot of my time into a co- in, into companies like I'll mention a few here. Wealth Simple, which is kind of the Robin Hood Coinbase of Canada, one of the largest com- like private companies, private fintech companies in Canada, for sure, raised one of the largest venture rounds in, in history in 2021. It's now th- three, bi- $3 million, which is kind of a tenth of the population, have in Canada have an account with them. I think they're going to be one of the top financial institutions in, in the country competing with the incumbents, starting with a wedge of investing, but then moving to other kind con- Crypto, obviously, trading, um, eventually banking, they've launched a card, et cetera. So peer-to-peer payments, et cetera. So they're kind of the moving to become the financial super app of of Canadians. We also have on the B2C consumer side, a company called 
a company called um, Albert in here in, um, well, not here, but in the US, they're really a financial banking product as well. Another consumer app that I'm very excited about. Again, I think there will be a crop of new consumer companies that change the way that that people interact with their finances. I think one of the hooks here, it's a bundle of different services. Again, in one, you can get financial advice from a genius via texting. They have some of the best SLAs for responding. If you think about how often I have been on hold with my bank, I can say that's something that I really value as a consumer. They also offer banking and lending and investing and savings products all in one. And then, I, and then I'll call out a company in Germany because we do have a very global portfolio, a company called Clark in the insurance space and a company called Allen, which is also in the insurance space in France, where we've done, where we've done quite a bit of investing in, in across Europe. And I would say both are really new examples of, of going to market and, and distribution and, and what you can build in a modern insurance stack. Clark is a B2C insurance broker. They do all lines. Allen is the first is the first insurance company in France in history to actually get a uh, full license or not the first in history, the first in the last several decades, I should say, and the first startup one for sure. And they are a full stack insurer that does group health. And so like, I think that gives you a good intersection of, of the kinds of investing that we do across B2B, across B2C, across payments, wealth management, asset management, banking and and insurance those are kind of the four core verticals that we spend time in i appreciate that one thing that was um i know it wasn't intentional but like three of the companies you mentioned had um male first names um alan clark right and albert so i don't know if that's like illustrative of something that's happening in terms of naming conventions but i thought that that was interesting well steph Given what you the, the macro environment that you've described, like where are exits today? Do you, do you see incumbents acquiring a, as valuations have come down? Are, are we going to see sort of a, a swath of, of of acquisitions here, or is there still too big of a, a you know a chasm between the two? Public markets have basically been closed. I think the one of the only ways that companies are going to exit these days is going to be through acquisition. I think there are a lot of, and it will be acquisition both from tech companies, large financial services incumbents. I think we haven't seen, we've started to see some acquisitions, but it's been like the numbers are not very different than what, we would have seen in the last few quarters. Everything else has dropped. Um, I think we will see more going forward. Certainly, I think the until the public markets reopen, which might take at this point years, um, I think we're going to see more acquisitions and or just more companies staying public. The best companies, or, or, or rather, staying private. The best companies, for sure, generally will still be funded. There's no question. So, uh, but acquisitions are definitely to come. I think there's going to be massive consolidation in the industry. So I think there will be lots of mergers and a lot of startups that are acquiring other startups as well. Mm. Interesting. Um, and just in the remaining time that we have, just a couple of minutes, um, what are you looking to do? You, you mentioned thematically uh, at the beginning of our, our conversation, sort of where your interests are. Like, what 
Where are you looking to deploy, deploy capital, you know, in the next, say, 18 months? Yeah. I mean, our core pillars are wealth management. I think, uh, like, I'll I'll go one by one. In in wealth management, I think the the area that we're spending a lot of time is alternative investments. I think credit as a part of that has become a big, has become a kind of, in, in this market and rate environment, super important. But I think others, things like real estate, tech investing and investing into other kinds of funds, be it PE or, or, or VC, um, is is really interesting in, in an environment where the 60-40 portfolio is probably dead. Um, in, in banking, I think that there's lots of opportunities, as I mentioned, in SME banking to fill the void that SVB and FRB are, are leaving. In payments, payments is super evergreen. We're spending a lot of time in B2B payments. We're spending a lot of time in B2B SaaS that monetizes via payments. And then in insurance, I mentioned climate risk as being one area. Cyber is another area we're spending a lot of time these days. That capacity has been super restricted in this area. So it's it's an area where there is a lot of opportunity if you can figure out how to underwrite properly. Steph, thanks for joining us today on, on Tearsheet LinkedIn Live. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Zach. This was really fun. And thank you all for tuning in. Um, we will republish this with a transcript on Tearsheet site, tearsheet.co. Thanks for spending your time with us today. Thanks, everybody.